Antigone's brother, Eteocles, fought for Thebes and for its king, Creon. Her other brother, Polynices, fought against Creon and thus against Thebes, his hometown. In the battle, they killed each other. Creon buried Eteocles with full military honors, but regarding Polynices, he ordered, quote, no one shall bury him, no one mourn him, but his body must lie in the fields, a sweet treasure for carrion birds to find as they search for food. His sister Antigone won't stand for it. Sophocles' tragedy Antigone was one of the readings of the 2022 Wyoming School of Catholic Thought, considering mortality and eternity. In the play, Antigone risks and loses her life over the filial duty to bury the dead. Before we broke up into seminar groups to discuss the play, Professor Adam Cooper gave us this introduction. Seems obvious, but it never ceases to be surprising that there's an immeasurable difference between any imagination, anticipation, thought about an event, and the event itself. Immeasurable difference. And this was brought home to me as I was driving this morning, uh, sort of speaking to myself what seemed to me an eloquent and uh, profound disquisition on mortality. Um, and uh, suddenly, in the peripheral vision, I saw uh, under the shadow of a tree a red octagon um, obtruding into my field of vision and realized that I was uh, driving at 30 miles an hour, blind, sailing blind into an intersection where I had no right of way. Uh, and suddenly slammed down the brake uh, forgetting to put the clutch in and came to a jolting halt that left me feeling much more for uh, five seconds at least much more like an animal than a rational animal. Um, but, but it is true and it is a concrete fact that I must die and you must. It's not an easy fact to acknowledge or come to terms with in the concrete. I am going to have to do it or suffer it. This fact enforces itself on Ivan Ilyich so slowly, painfully, and inexorably that in the end he takes hold of it almost in the very moment that it takes hold of him. Antigone, on the other hand, states it with perfect clarity early in her play. I knew I must die, even without your decree, she tells Creon, king of Thebes, I am only mortal. Each of us, likely somewhere intimate, unpleasant, and unmentionable, knows it. Each of us has a thousand ways of forgetting or glossing over it. Each of us has been caught off guard by it peering at us from the peripheries of our vision with a strange, not always frightful, sometimes almost mournful, almost teasing expression so that we are 
not sure what, if anything at all, it is asking of us. Not the facts that all men are mortal, Caius is a man, and ergo Caius is mortal, but the fact of my death, your death. This is a thing about which, since it will rob me of myself, one might say, as Augustine says of God, that it is somehow more inward to me than the inmost me. Oedipus knew it in the peculiar, ever-present wounds on his feet, where long before his conscious memory, his mother pierced and bound him as an infant. Ivan Ilyich knows it in that odd, persistently gnawing ache in his side and the off, unpleasant taste in his mouth, things known to him alone and on which he fixes his attention only in an unheroically persevering attempt to explain away. Uh, and he comes to regard this fact as a presence, impersonal and yet nearer to him than any person, something that he must look at even as it, with a capital I, looks at him and seems to stare through and through him. It searches out his inmost being. This it that comes to everyone who confidently calls himself I, me, and takes from this I, not this or that, but everything that it knows how to call I or me. In the face of this awful scrutiny of the mysterious one who requires his soul of him this night, Ivan Illich finally acknowledges and asks forgiveness for the nothing that his life, his deeds, his accomplishments, his joys have been. It is a mercy, a severe mercy, but a mercy nonetheless to be free and clear of everything that has constituted his life. Antigone, it seems to me, lives in this knowledge, this transparency to death from the very beginning of her play. She says on the first page, page 55, there is not any grief that you and I have not gone through to the end, she tells Ismini. Readers of Oedipus Rex will remember, if they remember anything of those plays at all, how her father Oedipus unwittingly killed his father and married and lay with his mother in love. The shame, the horror of these acts, so terrible that her mother hanged herself rather than face them, and her father carved out his eyes to meet them as best as he could, was her birth and her begetting. Oedipus Shortly before her death, Antigone explicitly acknowledges that her life, for good and ill, the ill being much more obvious, is bound up with that of her father. Page 83. Oh, Oedipus, father and brother, your marriage strikes me from the grave to murder mine. I have been a stranger here in my own land all my life. The blasphemy of my birth 
has followed me. Her very name, Antigone, means equal to her birth. The acceptance of his fate that Oedipus wins in the play Oedipus at Colonus is the fruit of his many years of wandering in exile on earth, reflecting on the mysteries of his life and approaching death. But this same acceptance seems to have been the fundamental fact of Antigone's character from the beginning. Oedipus spent his whole life coming to terms with the dark mystery of his birth. Antigone, equal to her birth from the beginning, willingly gave the best years of her life when her age mates were dancing, courting, and marrying to be the prop, the eyes, the guide, and the only companion of her blind father. She freely chooses to suffer with him to the end, teaching strangers by the beauty of her generous compassion to see in her polluted father not only the monster he seems to be, but the human being he is. And she sees Oedipus disappear into the awful mystery of his end, an end that he can recognize as something dignifying, something for which the sufferings of his life have purified and prepared him, something terrible, yes, but also meet and fitting, full of a blessing and power for those who are willing, as she is, to see in their own lives a mystery analogous to his. So, when you go home, read Oedipus Rex and Oedipus at Colonus. But given what she has undergone as a participatory witness in her father's tragic life, the words of the old wise woman Dilsey from Faulkner's Sound and the Fury would not be amiss on the lips of the still young Antigone. I seen the beginning and I seen the end. I think there are people like that. Maybe each of us is lucky enough to know one or two. Persons who very early in life somehow intuit and grasp the sufferings, disfigurements, and loss that life entails, and equal to their mortal birth, accept it with clear eyes and a generous heart. On the last page of the death of Ivan Illich, that small-souled man, now set free and ennobled by his recognition that his life has not been a good one, is able to regard the pain that for so long has made him recoil in horror and indignation and has for three days laid him prostrate, yelling like an animal. Where are you, pain? He turned his attention to it. Yes, here it is. Well, what of it? Let the pain be. This seems to me the be attitude of Antigone at the beginning of her tragedy. She has let the suffering, the death to which she was born, be her daily discipline, her teacher, her companion, even her friend. On page 69, she says, I knew I must die, even without your decree. I am only mortal, and if I must die, now before it is my time to die, 
Surely this is no hardship. Can anyone living as I live with evil all about me think death less than a friend? Ivan Ilyich becomes equal to his mortal birth only in the last moments of his mortal life. He never imparts to his son the wisdom that might help him choose a path different from his own. His plea for forgiveness is heard only by the one who sees the thoughts of his heart, but it is not heard by those to whom he owes this request, nor would they understand it if they could hear it. Though he at last senses what he might have been, should have been, could have been, had he and death got acquainted earlier, before the final appointment, he cannot actually be the person he was meant to be. I must act, he tells himself, shortly before his last feeble utterance. Forego. But in many ways, it is too late for him to act. It is too late for him to make anything of his life, his death, in a way that contrasts starkly with Tolstoy's story. Sophocles' tragedy raises the question of what we, those of us who still have time to act, can and should make of death. And the question, it seems to me, is raised in two prominent and complementary ways. So, question, what can and should we make of death? First, it is raised in Creon's decree that Eteocles, who died defending his city, should receive a hero's burial, while Polynices, who led a foreign army against his city, should be denied all sacrament and left outside the walls to the clawings of dogs and birds and to the slime and stench of nature's ugliest process. This decree, and Antigone's defiance of it, compel us to ask what a human society that is both familial and civic can or ought to make of the deaths of its children. Creon is trying to make something of their deaths, and Antigone is saying, you shouldn't. Second, it is raised in another form by Antigone's lonely and deliberate embrace of death. Her public repudiation of the terms of Creon's civic peace seems to thrust before us the question of what an individual can or ought to make of his or her death. What Creon makes, sorry, what Antigone makes of her own death is a response to what Creon attempts to make of her brother's deaths. So let us turn to Creon's decree. Creon rises to the throne after a generation of civil war caused by the quarreling sons of Oedipus, Eteocles and Polynices, who contend for their father's throne and at last slay each other simultaneously, an ugly omen for the future of civic brotherhood. But this war is only the latest of the city's calamities. Thebes' king, Laios, was murdered. The city has been preyed upon by a terrible sphinx, stricken by an all-withering plague. Thebes has witnessed the horrifying tragedy of the king whom they had looked to as a father and savior, Oedipus himself. But as the chorus of Thebes' old men sings, old but not wise, the rising sun now seems to touch with glory Thebes of the seven gates. And a new man, 
a new king is coming to preside over this auspicious dawn. Creon hopes to lay to rest and bury the evils that have haunted Thebes. He hopes to secure that peace of the city, which the city's late victory over exiled Polynices and his Argive army seem to promise. He will do so by making the lives and deaths of Polynices and Eteocles, princes of Thebes and his sister's sons, twice over, <laughs> making them an unforgettable example to his children, to his people, rather, showing forth the principles on which the common good, he thinks, can be established. He's a serious man, morally serious man. His governing idea is that the good which the city can recognize and propose to itself as good must trump all other considerations. And this is page 68, or 60, 60 rather, page 60. The man who sets private friendship over public welfare, I have no use for him. Friends made at the risk of wrecking our ship of state are not friends at all. As long as I am king, no traitor is going to be honored with the loyal man, but whoever shows by word and deed that he is on the side of the state, he shall have my respect when living and my reverence when dead. Thus, Ateocles, he says, who died as a man should die, fighting for his country, is to be buried with full military honors, with all the ceremonies that is usual when heroes die. But his brother Polynices, who broke his exile to come back with fire and sword against his native city and the shrines of his father's gods, whose one idea was to spill the blood of his blood and sell his people into slavery, Polynices, I say, is to have no burial. No man is to touch him or say the least prayer for him. He shall lie on the plain unburied, and the birds and scavenging dogs can do with him whatever they like. Creon is not only a powerful man, he is a morally serious one. He knows that whatever goods human life affords are under ever-present threat from chance, violence, passion, death, and all the dark forces of unmaking that Oedipus was unmade by. And he believes that what peace, happiness, affection, and pleasure life can give is best secured by the polis, the city-state, by a common agreement to laws, customs, and goals which citizens are willing to restrain themselves and each other, fight, and if necessary, die in battle to uphold because they give us some control over the potential chaos within and among and outside of us. This civic union is for Creon the only and best guarantee of all our other relationships, our relationships to our friends, to our family, even it becomes clear to the gods. When the chorus leader wonders whether the gods might have a hand in the at first mysterious burial of Polynices, Creon dismisses the idea out of hand. It is unthinkable to him, this is page 64, unthinkable to him that the gods could show any favor to a man who tried to loot their temples 
burn their images, yes, and the whole state and its laws with it. Is it your senile opinion that the gods love to honor bad men? A pious thought. In a vision of the world where the city-state is the highest overarching good, and the goods the city's laws and agreements can plausibly calculate for the only real goods, and the gods that protect the city, the only gods worth considering, bad is a sufficient and safe summing up of Polynices' life and death. Just as good, heroic, noble are a safe and sufficient summing up of Eteocles' death. By denying Polynices' corpse all ritual, every token of affection or honor, Creon attempts to pronounce the final word on his life and attempts to perform the meaning of his death as an utter and irrevocable casting off and casting out, something the church has done in the past by refusing burial and consecrated ground to excommunicates and so forth, the thing that bothered Shakespeare and Dante, that there's a soul in purgatory who meets Dante, has a sword blow cut through his eyebrow, and he, uh, many crimes against his bishop, died excommunicate, but repented right before death and uttered the first syllable of Mary's name so that he, the angel wards off the demon at the end, but his body is buried uh, outside and is cursed by the churchmen. And uh, I remember in Hamlet, Ophelia, who with broken mind and psyche, drowns herself buried in unconsecrated ground, infuriates her brother Laertes so that he says, I tell thee, churlish priest, a ministering angel shall my sister be when thou liest howling. <laughs> That's what Creon is trying to do. Thus, Creon makes Polynices' death a powerfully useful and edifying moral lesson. Yes, he grew up with us, played, wrestled, and argued with us in the streets. His family is our family. We honored him once as a prince. Yes, as the elder son, he had a plausible claim to the throne. Yes, he fought bravely, died miserably. But all of these considerations are as nothing in view of the fact that he made himself the city's enemy. And to see anything other than a traitor in him now would threaten the established order. Just as one must consider to see anything other then a usurper in Ateocles might have threatened the established order had Polynices' party prevailing come under the leadership of a king of Creon's mind. Thus, the truth of Polynices and even Ateocles' life is reduced to a deduction from the necessities of civic order. Truth, the gods, and death itself are given those meanings they must bear in the narrative within which the state secures for itself what order, peace, and happiness mortal life offers to a human being. At stake in Creon's, sorry, Antigone's defiance of Creon, then, is the recognition, as important in public and in private, that there can be no final word, 
on who and what someone is. Especially on who and what someone whose life touches ours nearly is to us. This recognition is publicly and interiorly performed in the rites of burial, in which the weight of a life is literally held and then let go of, in which an irrecoverable face is deliberately looked upon and then covered over, in which, in Antigone's Greece, the body, still whole and intact, bathed and clothed and anointed, is given over to the divine element of fire. In this rite of burial, we all together renounce the final word, the final judgment of a life, and entrust it to the mysterious gods who rule the world below. Page 69. On page 69, the immortal, unrecorded law of God to which Antigone appeals as not merely valid now, but that was and shall be operative forever, beyond man utterly, is this, that the meaning of our deaths, and therefore the meaning of our lives, belongs to God to utter and not to us, that the final word escapes us. Without this recognition, it is impossible, I think, to love or wonder at another impossible to grow in self-knowledge or knowledge of each other. Without this recognition, no community or city is worthy of the name. In one of uh, her line-for-line -line exchanges with Creon on page 71, Antigone suggests that in restoring honor to Polynices, she is also restoring the honor due to Eteocles, whose actual personal being is as canceled by Creon's utilitarian celebration of his civic service as Polynices is by his ritual casting out. In the same exchange, Antigone connects the honors due all the dead with the recognition that none of us can say with certainty who and what the gods hold wicked or just. But Antigone's stand is peculiarly beautiful because it is motivated by her hope against hope that the meaning of her life and death and those of her family, Oedipus, Iocasta, Eteocles, Polynices, might be love. On page 57, she says, I will bury him to her sister in the first scene. I will bury him. And if I must die, I say this crime is holy. I shall lie down with him in death, and I shall be as dear to him as he is to me. It is the dead, not the living, who make the longest demands. We die forever. Antigone dies with and for her brother because it is right that he receive burial and the gods below receive their due, yes. But on a deeper level, she does what she does because she wishes so to live and die that she can imagine loving her brother and meeting his love in the world below, where the true meaning of things will be revealed to last, she thinks, forever. <laughs> it is the dead, not the living, who make the longest demands. And on page 71, she tells Creon, it is my nature to join in love. 
and not in hate. She says this to the king who attempts to unite Thebes by means of a sacrament of common hatred, common violence against Polynices. What then does Antigone make of her death? Something beautiful, something deeply disturbing, something that makes us think of Iphigenia in that film, putting on the bridal veil and processing up the hill in a deeply disturbing, moving end. Something that makes Sophocles, as she processes to her tomb of stone, think of Niobe, who in weeping inconsolably for her children, who were no more, passed beyond the human and became a thing of all of grief, all of sorrow, a mountain of stone where the rain falls endlessly and the drifting snow. Page 83. And her tears are never done since the springs of her sorrow are a love endlessly bountiful, endlessly renewed. And she makes Sophocles think of Danae, whose virgin beauty shut off from life by a fearful, controlling father, captured the love of the Father God of heaven, who came to her in a spousal shower of gold. For Antigone makes of her death simply what the unknown God, who gave a mortal life to her at birth, will, seeing the final truth of things, make of it. To him, the God of the final word, she offers herself as bride and sacrifice. She makes of her life a sign of the mysterious depths and unique shades that haunt every human life, because every human life belongs not only to this mortal world, but finally to the unseen worlds below and above, whence whatever meaning our life has flows. Antigone knows in her being, in her birth, that we are strangers here in life, that we belong to the dead as much and more than we do to the living, that we can only love the living truly in that acknowledgement. Though she is confident and fearless in the justice and holiness of her action, she nevertheless gives God the final word on her own life, too, and her death. Page 84, one of her last words. As men's hearts know, I have done no wrong. I have not sinned before God. Or if I have, I shall know the truth in death. <laughs> but perhaps above all, Antigone makes her life a sign of hope, a hope against hope, that the final meaning of life and death is finally love. Equal to her birth, she remembers her father Oedipus's last word to her. Children, this day your father is gone from you. All that was mine is gone. You shall no longer bear the burden of taking care of me. I know that it was hard, my children. And yet one word frees us of all the weight and pain of life. That word is love. Her whole life, sealed in death, seems an almost total interpretation of the words she inherited from her father, love, a word whose meaning he perhaps learned from her. 
Thus, it is fitting that she calls the stony isolation of her living tomb her bridal bed, and the shadowy God who awaits her there to take her very self from her, her spouse. Fitting that she named death as her reward. It's a death like that of Agnes, or Cecilia, or, or Iphigenia, that invites her city to become a civilization of love and pious regard at whatever cost. And it's a, it's a death that is not only motivated by love, but one that enables her to love on. And as if setting free the unseen springs at the heart of things, to love more and more totally and deeply. Well, since I'm arguing that we must renounce the final word, I'll give the last word to her. O tomb, vaulted bride bed in eternal rock, soon I shall be with my own again, where Persephone welcomes the thin ghosts underground, and I shall see my father again, and you, mother, and dearest Polynices, dearest indeed to me, since it was my hand that washed him clean and poured the ritual wine, and my reward is death before my time. Well, there's a, there's a lot of things we could talk about in the seminar, and uh, I think you could certainly continue to ask the two questions that I'm asking. What does the civic, what does the human community can and ought it make of the deaths of its own, and what can an individual make of his or her own death? And even in ways that challenge what I've argued about it here. But there are all kinds of parts of this play that are also fruitful to talk about that I haven't even touched on, like the choral odes, in which this we have to ask, why does this mediocre chorus that follows Creon everywhere, how can they speak in this wit language of beauty and wisdom, and how do these odes about death, about love, about the ancestral curse, about man, how do they relate to the play? And is there a way in which the chorus thinks they relate to the play, and a way in which they actually relate to the play? That's one thing you might think about. You might think about the only other person who stands up against Creon in the play, Haman, the intended of Antigone and what is the way in which he stands up to Creon? On what grounds does he argue? What motivates him? And how, does, how is his stand different from Antigone's? Then there are perplexing things that always bother me, like the fact that in her death by solitary confinement, Antigone doesn't wait for death to take her. She uh, hangs or strangles herself with her veil. What do you make of that? And what do you make of the fact that when Creon finally relents, though the chorus advises him first to save Antigone from solitary confinement and then to bury Polynices, he goes himself and first buries Polynices and then goes to Antigone. Why, Why does he? He who seems to do everything for the sake of the living and dismiss the dead in this moment seems to neglect the rights of the living. Uh, and, uh, and what about those omens? What's the meaning of those omens that 
Tiresias sees and that cause him to go and warn? Anyway, those are some of the questions one can think about. But yes, let's, let's, let's go to seminar. Thank you very much. Next week, we'll jump from ancient Greece to the American South of the 1940s, as Dr. Virginia Arbery talks about death and decorum, focusing on the last chapter of William Faulkner's novel, Go Down Moses, a chapter entitled Go Down Moses. Again, the book is available both on the internet and in most libraries. I'd encourage you to read that short chapter this week. From Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.